welcome to Advanced Neuroeducation Podcasts. Informative, interesting topics, guests, and a bit of brainstorming, and sometimes we even have a bit of fun. So, here we go. Hi everyone, welcome to podcast number five. Today we're talking about migraine tricks and triggers. My name is James McLaughlin. I'm the lead educator at Advanced Neuroeducation. And I've really been looking forward to having a chat today because migraine is one of my fascinations. It's a complex brain disorder. So I had a, I looked it up. Um, as I do, the World Health Organization has migraine as the most disabling neurological condition. So that's maybe a bit of a surprise to some of you. It's also the sixth most disabling condition overall. So probably talking about something like 15% of the population at any one point in time is has a has migraine as a condition. So that means we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. So as we'll find out at the end of this podcast, one of the things we really need to do is learn a lot more about migraine and how migraine can influence us as health professionals in terms of how we manage and help people manage migraines. But um, it's just the scale of this thing is is enormous. So it's a brain disorder. Like you know, like my daughters just said this morning, why? Why are so many why do so many people have a brain disorder? And you know, you know, you start thinking maybe it's just a normal part of life, but it's not really. It 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 is a disorder, and I think we have to look at it as a as a disorder, but it's also something we have to be able to manage. Unfortunately, some people have really severe migraines, some people have milder migraines. I suffer with migraines, so that probably drives a lot of my fascination. And I'm probably lucky in terms of I have, it impacts my life, but it's only a mild impact on my life and I've certainly learned to manage that. I've got lots of relatives with migraines and more importantly, I've got, well, not more important, my family, but you know, more importantly, on a daily basis, probably we see people in our clinic with migraine, which influences how we treat them and their rehabilitation and, and how we educate them into uh managing migraine, but also managing the influence of migraine on, on their other conditions as well. But I think probably one of the most fascinating things about migraine is migraine triggers, because people always talk about migraine triggers. And one of the questions that I ask people when they say they have migraine, and often we ask them whether they've got migraine because we need to know, we ask them, Tell me, tell, I say, tell me about your migraine. What kind of migraines do you get? Now, the majority of people when they have migraines or they experience migraines, they tend to experience them in a typical way. And, but there is a percentage of their migraines that can be strange and, and don't follow their rule book. But what people can tell you is they can tell you about their migraines because they're going to be different. And obviously it's really important that the general population understand that migraine is not just a headache. In fact, sometimes it's not even a headache. It's other symptoms as well. And when we go through one of with our further teaching in advanced neuroeducation about migraines, you'll learn more about 
the signs and symptoms of migraine and also uh, some of the really interesting and bizarre aspects of migraine. Even more bizarre what we're talking about today. But um, triggers are, are really, really interesting because people will tell you about their migraine, but then also they'll start to tell you perhaps about what they feel triggers or, or sets their migraines off. And the idea of triggers triggers is really interesting because you wonder whether, is it is it a causal thing? Is it just um, part of the migraine process? Um, is it something that just tips people across a threshold level, which then results in a, a cascade of neurological and vascular events that lead to symptoms? Um, and and are, are some of the triggers even even real, like in terms of um, are people making associations based on their experiences, but it's not necessarily, you know, maybe some things, maybe that some things like wine, for example, uh, which is often uh, called a trigger, <clears throat> maybe that's unfairly criticised, and maybe that means that there's people out there who've given up wine and they probably could drink wine. There's just one example, for example, chocolate is another one. Um, you know, fancy giving up chocolate if you love chocolate because you think it triggers your migraines, but only to find out that it's not really a trigger for your migraines. So that that's a tragedy. So hence, it's good to teach people about migraine, discuss migraine triggers. It's also important for us over the next decade, as we learn more about migraine triggers um, and understanding perhaps what's the mechanisms of what's going on, um, so that people can manage their migraine a lot better, but also their, their whole quality of life, they can examine things a bit more carefully. So much of the links with migraine link to this thing called the trigeminovascular system. And if you're a physiotherapist, we've always had a bit of an interest in this because we see people with headache and we've often been interested in the relationship between structures in the neck uh, so the cervical spine and its relationship with headache. And we know, we know for a fact that there are patients that we can treat their necks with manual therapy and specific movement-based rehabilitation that we can improve their headaches. So we look at this cervicogenic headache, if you like. But then there are patients that will confuse us because they may have the same structural issues and the same referral patterns and we treat their neck but their response can be can be worse or it can trigger off a, a full unilateral headache migraine. And you do wonder what's the overlap between some of the structural aspects that can be influenced by trigeminovascular system. So that's things in, you know, upper cervical spine, the face, the head. Um, and how does that influence migraine? And if we take away some of the influences um, in terms of some of the things that might tip people over the edge, are we are we helping their migraine? So it's really, really interesting. But I'll come back to that. The first thing I wanna talk about is the fact that the big well-known triggers for migraine that are probably well accepted now, um, and that these are the big ticket items. These are the big ones. So let's just go through them. The first one, it sounds like a bit of a cop-out because everyone has it and everyone talks about it, but the first one that's really important to realize is stress. And stress does trigger migraines for migraine sufferers, and but stress is obviously a very complex phenomenon. One of the things you may want to read about when you're talking about stress and migraine is this high idea of 
allostatic load. That is, stresses that change the physiology of things, so they change things like autonomic responses, they change your mood, they change the vascular response, they change your neural response, um, and these physiological changes, if they pile up one on top of the other, or simultaneously, or in a sequence, can mean that the brain has to be able to cope with that level of excitability, and there may be a threshold level associated with that. So it seems like whether you're in high stress, and this doesn't have to be negative stress, it can just be high stress, excitement stress. It could be, you know, big things like there's, you know, your family members got married and there's a big occasion or you've got, it's Christmas day and you've been highly stressed, but you're really looking forward to it and you've been busy in the kitchen preparing. And But then there's also the other stresses like um, the stresses of stimulation and you've just been to a rock concert and or you um, have just been looking after the grandchildren and they've been screaming their heads off and it was all very good but all very stimulating. And Or sometimes for me, for example, I might be doing a, a really uh, lively uh, teaching experience with a, with a good crowd of people and lots of interaction and lots of laughs and lots of motion and stimulation and demonstrations and this bright fluoro lights all this kind of stuff so and you know and you may also be dealing with a bit of an illness or a slight infection or you've you've just had a cold or these kinds of things so it's just this general build-up of uh, allostatic load we know is a big trigger uh, and can contribute towards more frequent um, migraines for people so that's one the other one we have to acknowledge is hormones. And this is where the female conversation comes up. So we know that children ex can experience migraine and boys and girls have about the same instance of migraine until puberty. And then after puberty, it's about three times more frequent in females. The problem is when we talk about things like hormones like estrogen, it doesn't seem like it's a direct trigger but we know it's certainly a factor. So that means the relationship between hormones and migraine, which we know exists, is a not a straightforward one. So the possible theories might be that estrogen is linked to production of nitrous oxide, which is a vasodilator. Um, and then also when levels fall, there can be changes in inflammation, things like cytokines, and there can be changes in the neural central sensitization. And that influences things like nociception and pain experience. So that means that hormones are a factor. For a lot of females, um, migraines can be, can be linked to the menstrual cycle. Um, and therefore, for some people with particular kinds of migraines, um, hormones can be part of the treatment solution for those people. Now there's another one, another big one we know. Well, there's two more but one of the big ones is sleep. Sleep is a bit of a mystery in terms of what its, what its role is for our brain and why does our brain need sleep. That's another, another conversation which we'll probably get a guest in for that one to talk about what happens in the brain during sleep. What we do know more clearly is if you don't have sleep, how much your brain function is impaired. So we know that if you have less sleep, and sleep deprivation, that you're more likely to get a migraine. So it is, a, in some ways, it's a trigger. And so 
when you hear people saying, I've been on a business trip and I've been a bit out of routines or I'm a bit jet lagged, that kind of stuff, it's, it's no surprise that often you may experience a migraine at those stages. When we're talking about patient, our patients and our patients with chronic health and our patients with migraine, sleep will be something you need to dissect a little bit further because um, it may be one of the big players in terms of managing their migraine itself. Even so, um, the history of some of the medications for migraine, and I won't go into these today because that's not the role of this podcast, but if you think about some of the tri medical treatments for migraine, the thought now is that some of those medications are not really working like analgesias for headaches or they're not change, changing some kind of uh, vascular aspect like the tryptans, for example, or um, they're not looking at um, calcitonin gene-related peptides. There are some medications, for example, like tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline, but maybe their role is actually to help you sleep and therefore the helping of sleep might actually then help your migraines. And it's a conversation that's having it happening at the moment, which I think is really interesting. It doesn't mean it's not, a, not a, a decent option to to treat, but it's thinking about what are the mechanisms of some of those historical medications as to why they may be helping migraine. The last big ticket item is skipping meals, therefore blood sugar levels dropping. So in terms of when you don't eat regularly and you get a little bit low in your blood sugar levels, then for many people that is a trigger as well and they're more likely to slide into a migraine. One of the theories I do like when it comes to migraine is this idea of a threshold level and do things change your threshold? And it's threshold to cope with things like um, neuronal excitability in your brain. And so, you know, the energetics and the sensitization of nerves is influenced by things like uh, the nutrients that, that those brain cells actually need. And do things go wrong where um, it can be triggered and leads to a cascade of events where you might have some, you know, cortical depression and you might end up with some uh, aura symptoms like some flashing lights and things like that or you have some feelings of a change in your mood or something like that and then it flows onto the next stage where it might feel like you're getting a bit of a neck pain and you feel like you need to go to the toilet more often and you're maybe slightly feeling a bit foggy in your head and then start to get a unilateral headache and it starts to throb and everyone's story is very different but the idea of threshold levels is interesting because um, there's no doubt about it, migraine sufferers in general don't like change, a lot of change, and that's where the allostatic load with stress is important, but that's also, the, it could just be the change in things. And this is where it comes now into the interesting triggers, the stuff that we're not so sure about, but, um, you know, it's it's there, we hear it very often, and people will tell you with, with great certainty that these are, these are triggers for their migraine. Now, I've got some of these bits of information from an interesting paper, which I'll attach to the podcast on our website through Advanced Neuroeducation in the podcast section. But there's a reference here that I'll put from uh, from 2021, Kesawani, so Hassan Kesawani. This is a paper called Migraine Triggers, an overview of the pharmacology, biochemistry, atmospherics, and their effects on neural networks. And that's in the journal Curious. And I read this, and it's probably one of the more detailed look at some of these, the strange triggers that we associate when we understand it, is it has a relationship with migraine. 
So one of the ones they talk about is weather change. Changes in weather, people say, oh, they have the change in weather. We've known this for a long time with things like rheumatoid arthritis, and people can say, oh, the weather's changing, I can feel it in my knee, and there's often running jokes and that kind of stuff. But there's a change in barometric pressure, so we know there's been some research to show if you um, have a drop in barometric pressure, then you're more likely get to get people experiencing headaches and migraine. And, on, and vice versa. So if you um, have an increase in barometric pressure, you see a uh, reduction in migraine intent, uh, frequency uh, and reduction in headaches. So why? I don't really know. So some of the things they talk about is perhaps that uh, it's, a re- it's a response. It's actually maybe a response from the vestibular system, um, which I find interesting because I'm interested in vestibular. But the... Um, these inner ear structures, there may be some change in sympathetic nerve activity, and it may also have an overlap into the trigeminal nerve activity, which tends to be a bit of a hotspot for physiological changes tri- tripping off into a migraine. The other one is, in terms of weather, is hot, dry winds and, and thunderstorms. So the idea might be that they, hot winds produce positive ions, and positive ions might increase um, blood and brain serotonin levels, and then, of course, serotonin levels change brain vasculature, and you can get these changes that also could could be a change in, in threshold and a train, change in brain activity that maybe your migraine brain doesn't really appreciate. The other one, this is interesting because I think about my childhood, um, is smell, perfumes, for example. Uh, and a lot of people say, yeah, perfumes trigger off. And I'm very sensitive to perfumes, and, and in fact, not a big fan of perfumes altogether. Probably... With, with strong associations to childhood migraines, which you know didn't fully understand at the time, but you know perfume is interesting because an, an, the odor in the nasal mucosa can stimulate the olfactory nerve, um, but then it could also stimulate trigeminal. Uh, and the thing about the smell and and this, it's not not just as necessary a smell and therefore a stimulation. It can also be uh, an irritation. So we talk about a, a pungent um, aspect to these things. So it could be odor or a, pun, uh, a pungent effect. And it's known to really trigger off migraine in a lot of people. So I find that one really interesting because I remember being young and it, here in Adelaide, South Australia, there's a shop we've got in um, in Rundle Mall called David Jones. Nothing against David Jones. It was a good shop. But I remember being a kid walking through the ground level and there were two things I can remember vividly. One is in the ground level, it's all the perfume being sold and then it's all being sprayed about and it's just an overwhelming smell of perfume that absolutely drives you bonkers. And But then, then they got to a point, I don't know what age I was, but David Jones had then started um, with this new food hall, which was downstairs in the basement. And then you get this waft of food smells coming up from downstairs. Hot, dry, and often smelled smell like cookies were being um, cooked. And I often felt that they were, it wasn't a good cookie smell necessarily. It was like slightly burnt cookie smell. Maybe this is just my weird, my weird memory of things. But so you have this double whammy of this hot, dry cookie smell. Then you have this overwhelming perfume smell. And then of course, you know, I'm, I'm talking, I'm really quite young. So I'm with my parents and we may, may be going with my mum and then the next thing you get is into an elevator to go upstairs to somewhere else to look at clothes or something else, or maybe something vitally important. And we would go into the uh, sort of a, then a dry, um, 
not well circulation in, in an elevator situation. And then I remember it wouldn't take me long to start getting very headachy and brain foggy and my mood would change. And I was, pro I can imagine I probably would have been complaining. But yeah, I find it fascinating. And right now, so even now, this morning I was walking to work and as I walked down the street, um, a lady had crossed the road and I, th I thought, no, I won't nip in front of her because I didn't have the energy to walk briskly in front of her. So I thought, oh, look, I'll just duck behind. And of course you get that, she walked in front and then I'm five meters at least behind her, but I'm still getting the waft of perfume and something in my brain says, no, no, no. And this is probably, this is decades of experience now. So I backed off walked much further behind, went really slow because my brain's saying, not, no, not today. I don't think you will appreciate having that perfume smell. So anyway, it's fine. It's really interesting. So what's another weird one? Another near, weird one for us as physiotherapists is neck pain because neck pain is a very, very convincing symptom and sign that can trick us. And it tricks us as physiotherapists and it tricks us as people because you can i can be poking my neck i can be actually feeling stiff I'm, in fact my movements are stiff in my neck i can palpate my upper cervical spine and feel that that's really painful and in fact the palpation might refer into my head so i think oh there you go this is what we used to think back in the 1990s you're palpating the upper cervical spine it's reproducing your headache therefore you've got a cervicogenic headache wrong it's all sensitized at that point and you see the next day i could be palpating my neck and i haven't had any physio treatment and there's no pain in my neck there's no stiffness in my neck and it's not reproducing my headache so i'm not saying that the upper cervical spine doesn't contribute to headaches what i'm saying is we can be conned at times and neck pain can be a, a pre-dromal symptom of migraine before an attack it can also be part of the attack in migraine, so you can have neck and head pain, um, but neck pain is a really, really interesting one. And it has duped us as physiotherapists on many, many occasions. So keep that in the back of your mind. There may be cervical contributions to pain and to noxious stimulus and to uh, maybe even other sensory afferent signals that can be are not appreciated by a migraine brain and therefore can be treated and then help people. Because it's all about, we talk about managing migraine, and we'll say this on the course, but we'll, it's all about really reducing the layers that could be contributing to migraine. So that's something to think about, neck pain. We know that light and visual stimulus can be bad. So bright lights, flashing lights, uh, you know, flickering lights, these kinds of things, blue lights. That's where we know with severe migraine, you can get glasses now, actually quite cheap where we, um, we know you can get glasses which have a blue light filter. We use this with migraine, we use it with brain injury, we use it with concussion, where we're trying to do things but without too much overstimulation. We know now with your computer screens, so even the computer screens I've got right now in front of me, I've, I've dialed them right down. So when I'm having a long session doing some work, some marking at university or things like that, I dial them right down because I'm trying to reduce the stimulation. We know with our iPads and our, uh, our tablets, we can have switch off that, the blue light uh, after a certain date or you can have it permanently switched off because light can be a real trigger. So the light's a big one. Obviously visual auras are one of the most common um, early uh, pre-dromal signs of migraine. So um, 
people with migraine with aura can have some kaleidoscope and flashing lights and little things like that. Sometimes that can preempt the fact that they're going to end up attacked with a headache or they'll have dizziness and vertigo or they'll start feeling nauseous and vomiting or they have all of the above. It can be, but for some people it can just be a trigger and it goes away and it comes back. And this is this comes back to this point, and I want to make this point at the very end, that remember that migraine is not about attacks. Migraine is a 24-7 condition. And the, the sooner we think about that, uh, the better we are going to be helping people manage their migraines. But anyway, vision's a trigger, that's for sure. Um, and something to think about, even when you go and see a movie. Um, we saw a movie recently, it was the Doctor Strange movie, which was the... Um, I don't know, multiverse of madness, visually stimulating. I loved it. But not surprisingly, it triggered off a migraine for me. And, you know, it was worth it, but, um, you know, it's just something to be aware of. There's a few other ones you can think about, other triggers. So alcohol, there's some debate about this. Now, you can drink enough red wine and really irritate the dura mater in the brain and that could be a, a problem so that's adding to that noxious stimulation and something else your brain has to sort of habituate to and gate out and deal with but it's also um, alcohol may have things in it may have preservatives in it um, may have sulfides in some of the white wines and some of these things um, that may for some people be triggered so that's really, really interesting to see what we learn about that um, smoke can be a trigger uh, heat can be a trigger for, for some people. Um, occasionally, but not always, occasionally be aware that exercise can trigger and sexual activity can trigger migraines because you're always going to get a f floods of changes. You're going to get endorphins. You're going to get hormonal changes. Um, so think about that. It's unusual. We don't see exercise-induced headaches. It's something we would screen for, particularly with our brain injury concussion populations when we're trying to understand autonomic responses to exercise and tolerance to exercise. Um, it's relevant in terms of our some of our vestibular patients, but for so many of our vestibular patients have vestibular migraine, it's worth trying to understand as we're trying to get them more physically active often, whether you feel exercise might be a trigger. Not common, but worth thinking about it. The other one that's really fascinating is food and all the different food triggers. And it has created a really interesting discussion point, which you can talk amongst yourself, I think it's really interesting, is that are a lot of the foods associated with migraine, now let's think about them, cheese, chocolate, Chinese, there's actually, there's one like the hot dogs, for example, and we know hot dogs are gonna have some of the nitrates in them that may be a, a stimulation. But there's a whole bunch of these, um, Craving foods are associated with migraine. And it makes you think, is it, is it always the food itself or is craving often associated with a change in mood? And for those of you who understand, would appreciate that mood and food, they do go together. And when you crave something, it often reflects the mood uh, and the behavior behavioral state that you're in. So it seems things like chocolate, for example. And do you go to grab the chocolate when you're a bit low in mood or and because your your migraine's already well on underway, then you eat a bunch of chocolate and then you have a migraine and you blame it on the chocolate. But was the chocolate just a pre-dromal craving? So that's what I was thinking about. And it's may, maybe that's why the evidence is not that clear compared to some of the other triggers that we've been talking about. 
even the weather changes, the, the, the food ones are tricky. Um, and there may be direct tri trigger causes with food, but there may be some that get some perfectly beautiful foods that get blamed for causing migraine that may be not. So have a think about that. It's a, I find it absolutely fascinating aspect. And I suppose we're going to learn more, the more we understand about mood, the more we understand the cognitive effects of migraine. So, you know, when you are operating on 85% brain power because your migraine is brewing, it's gonna have effect on your performance, gonna have effect on your irritability, your mood, how much you can tolerate, how, the capacity you've got to concentrate. And these things have effect on other things like what you choose to do and what you choose to eat. So have a chat and see what you think about that. Look at your diet, look at what you think is a trigger and think what are the real triggers and maybe what are the ones I've been blaming on that are purely innocent bystanders. So anyway, there's just some of the triggers. There's a lot more, um, but as I said, I like trying to keep these podcasts below half an hour, half an hour. otherwise um, they go into another realm of uh, discussions that uh, we can have another time. So where to from here? Look, triggers and discussing triggers with your patients, just discussing triggers with yourself and your family can be a large part of the self-management conversation you need to have. Uh, and it really does lead to a, a deeper understanding. So if you can deepen your understanding of migraine, uh, especially the idea that migraine is a 24-7 brain disorder, uh, and the more that you understand that, the more you can adapt your treatments for things like neck pain, headaches, uh, our vestibular rehab will have to adapt, the way we manage concussion and head injury. And actually, if you th even think about it, any form of chronic pain, migraine sufferers have different pain tolerances even when we test their pain levels in their shin, if we're even looking at their in, in non-specific low back pain. If you're a migraine sufferer, your pain perception is different, your tolerability and the way your brain copes and deals with uh, sensory signals is, is really interesting. So it's not just the whole uh, trigeminovascular aspect of things, um, but it's a bit more of a global effect on our, our ability to tolerate. And then of course, think about mood, think about yourself. If you're a migraine sufferer, think about how does it affect you? What might be triggering it? What moods do you get into? Have a bit of a reflection uh, it took me decades to have a, a real, an understanding of how migraine was affecting me. Again, I'm not complaining because I've got, I mean, compared to my patients, I've got very mild migraine, but it's very important that we understand it. If you're really interested in migraine, one of the things you can look up is abdominal migraine, especially in pediatrics, and that's fascinating. So the link that, and that link that we've got, uh, that everyone's fascinated at the moment about the brain and the gut especially things like Parkinson's disease and that kind of stuff. But anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent. So I will put the paper, uh, the migraine triggers paper uh, attached to this podcast. So you'll see it on the website. If you go to uh, advancedneuroed.com, then you go to podcasts and you go to this podcast, attached to that will be uh, the reference um, and you can have a look at that paper and if you're interested in it like I am. Um, but the main thing here, look, There'll be a course coming up, Migraine in a Nutshell, I think we're going to call it. Um, it's going to be a short course, but it's just getting people up to speed with migraine and have a really have a better understanding of it. It's good to have a better understanding of migraine, not because it's just so common, but also because it's just really interesting. 
And then the next podcast coming up, we're going to be talking about concussion baseline testing. There's a little bit of controversy about that. It's a fast-moving uh, area. We've been getting into different kinds of baseline testing with concussion. And I think there's some revealing things to, um, that we can uh, add to where baseline testing fits in um, and its role in brain health and how things move, are moving forward so fast. We want to make sure that we do things um, and not overreact, but do them according to best evidence and best practice. And then the next podcast after that, we're going to be talking about uh, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, the most common cause of dizziness out there, so BPPV. Um, and I think the one after that we're going to do uh, after that will be we're talking about uh, challenge points with motor control and the whole idea of um, threat and surprise in terms of when you're doing a motor learning task, how we can use uh, the how the brain evaluates something, whether it's actually important. Um, and we can use some little tricks and tips to make uh, learning a bit more persistent um, and with better carryover effect with our patients. So there you go. So I'll finish there. I hope you enjoyed our little, little chat about migraine uh, tricks and triggers. And I'll see you next time for podcast number six. Okay, see you later. Oh, hey, before you go, there's one thing I forgot to mention is that uh, our online courses that have been brewing along uh, are ready to go. So we've got our first uh, online course, Assessing the Dizzy Patient in General Practice. This is a course for all clinicians who want a, a quick, uh, informative, evidence-based um, way of assessing people with dizziness. Uh, really good for GPs in general practice, really good for physiotherapists, all physiotherapists who just need to, who, who we think you need to know how to assess uh, dizzy patients. This course is going to be released at the end of this month, September 2022. Um, so that's really, really exciting. And then in October, we'll be releasing the course Positional Vertigo, a comprehensive guide to treatment. This course is going to be a, uh, a really a comprehensive look at treating all the BPPVs. Um, we've managed to convert our face-to-face -face teaching and create it such that we've got some good videos and some good instruction to treat positional vertigo. And it's not just about BPPV. We talk about migraine, as we've been talking about today, uh, as the number one mimic of BPPV and the various other presentations that lead to positional vertigo. Um, so it's a bit more, it's not just comprehensive in terms of treatment for all the different kinds of BPPV, which is the most common cause of dizziness but also how to manage positional vertigo of other kinds as well and to be able to recognize the difference. So that course is quite comprehensive and that'll be out in October. And then one more before Christmas will be uh, motor control concepts for training. This is a big popular one. This is taking all the really cool stuff out of our balance and motor control course and putting into anyone involved in movement training. If you're a coach, if you're a physio, if you're an occupational therapist, exercise physiologist, or just someone interested in, in, in sports and sports coaching of movements and skill acquisition, this is the course for you because we try and pull together some really interesting information. Um, so keep a lookout for those um, and we'll have some supplementary uh, blogs and other material too uh, about those courses coming up. So I just wanted to add that in so we, we didn't forget. And for those of you asking, we do have a comprehensive concussion course that will come in early 2023. 
And then we've got a really big uh, physical rehab and multiple sclerosis co course coming next year in 2023 as well. So um, it's, it's great that all these courses are gonna be getting out there um, and then we can supplement them. Of course, every course will be supplemented with some live Q&A sessions so we can nut out some really interesting questions that people have and keep them as clinically relevant as we can. So I'll let you go now. See you later. Thank you.